How are we doing, folks? Super excited about my guest today, Douglas Robinson. Mr. Robinson has helped guide some of the largest and most successful corporations as an outside consultant and operationally as a president and CEO. Doug has had several high-profile stops along the way as either president, director, or CEO for the following companies, United Health Group, Workwell Systems, LifeVantage, Global Rescue, Baduna Corp, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, and others. In this episode, we discuss Doug's beginnings, what drives him every day, and his approach when it comes to tackling the business world. I hope you enjoy Doug's journey of failures and successes so far. And also, on Doug's behalf, we're donating $250 to the Huntsman Cancer Foundation, a foundation that is near and dear to Doug's heart. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Enjoy, folks. All right, sir. Perfect. We're rolling. Mr. Robinson, thank you for uh, taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Bobby. You don't so, have to call me Mr. Robinson, though. Uh, Doug. <laughs> So one of the things, you know, as I was uh, looking through and kind of prepping uh, for this was uh, I, w- I was taken aback, you know, getting your start in your Bachelor of Arts at uh, Gonzaga. And, I, you know, you get your degree in, in communication and PR, marketing, all those things. And then the, the field you've kind of gone more towards or kind of gone into is, is that real emphasis on, on healthcare. And I'm just curious for those that are kind of starting out, figuring out, you know, finishing up school or what, whatever else. Did, did you have an idea when you were going through that process that that's kind of where you'd end up uh, gravitating towards? Yeah, um, it's kind of a roundabout story, but I'll, I'll take you back very briefly. My dad was a nuclear physicist, okay. um, had tons of advanced degrees, all in the hard sciences. And I was the youngest of four kids. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was anything related to the hard sciences. With all due respect to my dad, I thought, you know, it was a great career for him. It just was a turnoff for me. Mm -hmm. So when I went to college, I wanted to go into business. And what I really wanted to do um, was go into public relations. And the dream idea I had when I was young and, Mm -hmm. and still a student So I wanted to be part of a team from a PR standpoint that could save a company from some sort of disaster. So like an oil spill, Mm -hmm. you know, out in the Gulf, which happened years later, but it would have been kind of how I envisioned the perfect thing to be a part of a team that can come and resurrect a company in its image and bring it back to prosperity and and greatness. And I had a professor at Gonzaga um, in the communications arts area that I gravitated towards. I mean, he was a, he was a mentor in a word. And so I told him that's, that's what I wanted to do. And he gave me a piece of advice that that here almost 40 years later, I can recite very clearly. And he said, Doug, before you can sell a company in terms of its concept and, and from a public relations standpoint, you first have to learn and master selling, selling products. Um, and I never really, you know, I worked at a ski shop when I was a kid, you know, I sold stuff that always came easy to me, but I never thought of it as a profession. And so, um, it was a quick conversation, but it was incredibly poignant. And I ultimately went in as, as you probably saw to IBM straight Mm -hmm. out of college, but selling computers and mainframes and, you know, all of that. So I could learn selling. And then ultimately I moved, I never got into public relations, ironically mm-hmm. and interestingly, but I did move into healthcare and healthcare. If you think about it on a, on a very high level, um, it's a concept. It's a, it's a huge industry. It's embattled. Um, you know, it's fraught with change, fraught with challenge, fraught with bad PR, bad press, but it's, and we all need it. We right. can't imagine life without access Absolutely. to the greatest healthcare system ever. So long-winded way of kind of how way back in college that that seed of that's what you need to do and pursue that. And so I did. And then, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So now, I mean, making that kind of transition of going into selling and, and going towards IBM and all that stuff, I mean, what was that? Was that like a, a big 
out of the comfort zone, like, okay, this is an area I didn't really think that I kind of had to go into, or did, did you already kind of have the idea of like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I mean, you kind of had confidence enough that I'm going to figure it out on my own. Yeah, it was pretty much that, um, that same professor at Gonzaga, mm -hmm. um, I guess I could use the term moonlighted during the summers mm -hmm. uh, as a consultant to corporations on everything from image to executive coaching to selling. Mm -hmm. And his name was Bud Hazel, by the way, he passed away about uh, 10 years ago or so now, but just a, just a tremendous guy, someone that I, like I said, learned from to this day. He was moonlighting for Blue Cross of Washington and Alaska. I was living in in Spokane at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and he was helping them in their sales and uh, corporately out of Seattle. And they were planning to stand up a, an HMO, health maintenance organization. And they were looking for someone in. So here you get a kick out of this. They wanted to stand it up. This would have been like 1986 or so. They wanted to stand it up in Spokane because if it failed, it would be quiet as opposed to standing it up in Seattle. If it failed, everyone would see it and, and recognize it for being a failure. So they, they wanted to get into the health maintenance organization business, but they wanted to do it in a, in a very quiet way. Mm -hmm. And they asked Bud Hazel if he knew of anyone in that market or generally in the Pacific Northwest who might be good for that. And he thought of me. Um, and so ultimately he connected me with Blue Cross and I was at IBM at the time. Yeah. And very, very happy at IBM and, you know, comfortable, saw where my career could go, et cetera. But there was something about, first of all, instant credibility that it was coming from my mentor. Right. Um, so, yeah. of course, I took the meeting. Um, and then the meeting kind of just went from there. I was very young. I was probably 23 at the time. And they were looking for someone that didn't necessarily need a healthcare background. Mm -hmm. uh, but someone that could connect with physicians and hospitals and build a network and then ultimately meet with large employers and, and get them to sign up. That's what I ended up doing. And, and, you know, I kind of went from there with, with, uh, with the whole healthcare thing. Now you mentioned kind of setting up those connections. I mean, is that how difficult of a process or how much does that, does that work goes into kind of building those, those relationships? I mean, on the business side, in, the business, in, yeah. yeah, it was, um, in a word, persistence. Um, I can't tell you how many times. And again, 1985, 86, it's before the internet. <laughs> if you can, so there was no emailing people. Um, we were using fax machines if something needed to go quickly to, but it was a lot of phone calls. Um, and oftentimes there wasn't even an, a, a message that you could leave outside of like an executive assistant. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot, of, a lot of that, tons of persistence following up. And ultimately, my style then and probably still today was, um, let's meet, let's get together. Let me tell you about my company, my value proposition, what I'm trying to do, mm -hmm. and explore whether or not that could be meaningful to you and your organization, if it's a multi-specialty clinic or a hospital or, or what have you. The toughest thing I think that I had back then was my youth uh, and inexperience. I mean, at 23, I was calling... CEOs of hospitals who were old enough to be my parents or older mm -hmm. um, and asking for an hour of their time. Uh, I had to overcome that. And I just, uh, that that's more in retrospect during, at the time, I just never, it never really dawned on me that I was this kid mm -hmm. that was trying to, you know, get in front of people that were very busy and very accomplished, but I just reached out and did it. So was that just your kind of personality or just, you know, not knowing any better? Like, okay, this is the job. This is what I need to do. These are the people I need to get in touch with and the persistence will come through. And, you know, I mean, looking back on it, obviously just a, a young kid, I mean, 23 going through, that's quite the, quite the challenge. Yeah. yeah. You know, the movie Apollo 13 hadn't come out yet, but that line of failure is not an option was kind of my mantra. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I needed to build a network of, of clinics and hospitals and physicians. Um, I, need, I had a very short window. I can't even remember. It was like six months we needed to build from start to finish an acceptable network with a reach throughout uh, what they call the Inland Empire, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Spokane and Coeur d'Alene and surrounding areas. Um, so very short period of time, 
failure just wasn't an option. I needed, you know, not only did I need to get the meetings, but those meetings needed to basically unfold with signed contracts over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that time period, start to finish, like I said, was a real, you know, short six months or so. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a naivete, uh, bold, brash, you know, like, of course, I've got to get this done. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't really give it a second thought. So where would you say that kind of that confidence or that, that uh, naivety, the, you know, just to, to be able to figure that, where does that, where did that stem from for you? Where'd you kind of build, build that? You know, I, I gotta say my upbringing, you know, my mm-hmm. parents, it was huge uh, to be inquisitive, to um, be polite, respectful, um, hardworking, you know, I could tell you so many different stories of, you know, way back to when I was a very young kid, my first paper route at like 10, you know, in Buffalo, New York, um, shoveling driveways in Buffalo, New York. And keep in mind, shoveling, uh, we didn't have a snowblower, right? Um, all that kind of stuff. And I can still remember so many times my dad saying, you know, I can, I asked him, why are we the only ones that don't have a snowblower, you know, and, and we had the longest driveway. Um, and he quite literally said it builds character and, you know, he'd, he'd like leave after that. And so I'd have to go out and shovel. Well, I got a paper route and the money that I made from my paper route, I bought a snowblower. Um, so I would not have to shovel the driveway anymore, but then I went out and started snowblowing neighbor driveways and all that kind of stuff, you know, just a entrepreneurial young kid, but it was a, you know, get up and make it happen. Don't look for others to make it happen for you, that kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. And that was fostered and reinforced at Gonzaga. Um, Gonzaga was a tremendous four years of that, of my first grade in college was an F because I didn't follow the, the strict rules of writing a paper. It was supposed to be one page and it bled into the second page, you know, a page yeah. and a quarter. And I got an F because of that. I didn't follow the rules. So right out of the gate, I, I was hit like a two by four on the side of the head, follow the rules, you know, right. and, and you'll do well. So, probably, you know, sorry again for the long-winded answer, but I'm sure it all stems back to my parents. No, that's, that's the great thing about these podcasts. Long with this is the place to be uh, long winded and really kind of get, get in depth on it. So yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Cause I'm just, it's, it's one of those things I'm always curious about with prior guests and stuff that I've had on is that, that drive and that kind of, you know, want to, and, and to accomplish and things like that. And, you know, do you think that that's something that, that can be taught? Or do you think that that is something at nine, 10 years old, those parents, they kind of instill it in you. Because I mean, you see those people that just have that insane amount of drive. And then there are those others that, quite frankly, most of the time are more talented or have more potential. And they're just kind of lazy, more laissez-faire. I mean, not all of them, but I would say a broad majority are, are definitely lazier when everything's kind of handed on that silver spoon and they don't, they don't really have that uh, drive and, and kind of ambition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I can't tell you many times in a disappointing way, you see people, whether it's in business or your personal life or you know, family, extended family, whatever it is, neighbors, people you come in contact that are just incredibly talented naturally, whether it's, uh, you know, physical gifts for, from sports or um, intellectual gifts through their smarts. You know, they've, they've, we've all known people where they don't need to study. They just, boom, they get an A. Yeah. But, it, but that talent and that the drive might not be there and it's wasted. Um, in every way you can define that term or just squandered. Uh, that disappoints me. It's frustrating to me to see that happen. And, you know, with our kids, we instilled a work ethic and, and, and you know, various different things like that. And, and to each of them, and they're all very different, you know, a couple of the, the, the daughters, um, I'm happy to say, you know, the youngest Colby, our youngest son is 30 now. So they're all doing well. They're all adults. They're all moving forward. But I think that early on, it was instilled in them to work hard uh, and don't take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. So they did that. I think at the core of your question, though, I think it's you, you asked, can it be learned? I don't know the answer to that. 
But I can tell you, I think if it's reinforced and some role model or role models in someone's life, if they see it regularly, mm-hmm. it being that hard work ethic, the work ethic, the, the drive and what have you, it'll be reinforced and it will become part of who that person is. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's not going to be once or twice, but if it's just there looming and they have time and again examples of it, uh, I, I, I've got to believe that it will be adopted. Right. And absorbed. No, I definitely think that that makes sense, especially the, the reinforcement, you know, whether it's every day or it's a couple times a week, you're kind of just seeing and you're, and you're noticing those things that it, it definitely seems to help when they, when the kids see their dad busting his ass every single day and those little things, right? Because I, th- I think it's that, that fine line that you, I mean, I know at, at least in my, um, my life, it was always, you could see it. Mom and dad were always out working and it was that reinforcement that, um, you know, you better be, you better be busting your butt. You better be working pretty hard and, and figuring out the, uh, the next step right. and, and kind of where you want it, want it to go. Cause complacency is where you seem to die. You know, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't agree more. You know, there's, I can pick out so many different instances where, where exactly what we're talking about, I had to learn and relearn many times over. So again, it's, it's that reinforcement, but one uh, really quick, when I was in going between my junior and senior year of college, I got a job in Helena, Montana um, that was in a group home. And I was going to be one of the, the quote unquote adults for these uh, probably 13 to 15 year old kids. There were eight or 10 of them that lived in this giant old mansion uh, mm-hmm. converted to a group home. And these kids, like I said, 13 to 15 would have otherwise been in juvenile detention, or if they were older, they would have been in, in jail or prison given how their life was going. And so they needed people. And I was one of two that lived in the house. Um, they had counselors come in much smarter and older and more mature than I was. I was, a, as I said, between junior and senior year of college during the day to help these kids. They just needed, when they went away at five o'clock, they needed someone in the house to keep order. Um, Talk about baptism by fire, you know? (laughs) Um, But that paid for room and board. It it gave me a roof over my head and food on the table for that summer. My job for the summer, I was trying to pursue a job with, with IBM. IBM's headquarters for that region was in Helena. And I knew I wanted to kind of pursue that even when I was in college. And ultimately I did, but I can remember calling my parents, you know, long distance call saying, I need some clothes for the IBM job, suit, ties, white shirts, et cetera. Again, 1983, this was back when we all wore suits and ties. Um, And my mom and dad said, my mom said, go out to the, there's gotta be a men's store in Helena, go out and pick out what you want give us a call and tell us what you think. So I did, and I, I picked like, I thought I was really good about this, like two or three sport coats, some shirts, some slacks, all that could interchange and some ties. So I called my parents and I said, here it is. Here's the bill. You know, let's, let's take care of this. And my mom said, we'll pay for one of those sport coats, one of those slacks, two ties and a shirt, something along those lines a fraction of what I had picked out. And I can remember, I was really pissed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I abruptly ended the call. I was kind of upset. And there was an epiphany, like a light bulb came on shortly after. I'm pissed because they're willing to buy me stuff. But it wasn't everything <laughs> wasn't I me. thought I needed or wanted. And it was a critical lesson that, that actually by them doing what they did, they were reinforcing it yet again. If I need that, I've got to work for it. It's not mm-hmm. going to be handed to you. Um, and, and it just settled in with me right then and there. And almost from that point, you talk about an inflection point, almost from that point, I wasn't asking my parents for anything else. In fact, I can't even remember how the, the actual story ended. I think I still accepted whatever they were willing to do because I mm-hmm. needed clothes. But from that point forward, I just, I told myself, you know what, I'm an adult, I can handle this. Now, granted, they were paying for my college tuition and and room and board. So I still had another year to go. So I graciously accepted that. But beyond that, it was, I I don't think I asked for much more ever again. 
-hmm. And that's a good thing. That wasn't a, a negative or there was no rift between me and my parents, quite the contrary. Yeah. It just it was another one of those reinforcing lessons. Reinforce kind of a little bit of like accepting too, like, all right, time to kind of wean off and, and be the adult, yeah. go out and kind of kind of figure it out. Yeah. It's super interesting. And it, you know, it's interesting because I feel like in today's world that happens less and less, at least in a lot of areas where, you know, like in Park City and stuff like that. I mean, you got kids that are hanging around with their parents for taking care of them for long periods of time and, and stuff like that. And they're upset. You know, it, when we used to be, uh, when he was in high school, I remember the car that I had was the uh, 1996 Ford Explorer. And I love that car. So I got that. I had that car for my birthday. I had like 260,000 miles on it and rusted all through the bottom. And, but it could get from point A to point B. And I remember, you know, it was always one of those things that's stuck with me when you go to the Park City's high school or whatever, very affluent high school and be pulling up, it'd be like Audi, Porsche, Beamer, yeah. like, and these kids, you know, kids like 16, then this is their, yeah. for, that's the first car. It's like, oh my goodness, it's pretty, pretty wild. I felt pretty blessed to be getting the, uh, the old Ford Exploder. Right. Yeah. Car. Yeah. yeah. It's a car. I can, you know, I can be a little bit of an adult. I can go from point A to point B. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I've had that same thought driving by the high school parking lot and glancing over at the cars and just, just kind of smiling like, wow. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Crazy. That wasn't my situation growing up. <laughs> so uh, one of the things you, you touched a little bit earlier when you were uh, kind of going in and selling in that six month period and everything else, just the, the style that you said you kind of carried through, through the rest and you even use today is kind of that in-person relationship. Hey, I got an hour. Let's go. Let's go meet. Let's not be on the phone. Let's not. How, how important do you think that is for, for people in general to kind of build that, that communication and, and that rapport when you're trying to create those relationships and, and everything else? Because I feel like that's one of the things, especially with millennials and kids today and everything else, it's a text message or it's just a, you know, okay, I talked to you for two seconds. They don't even really like to talk on the phone. I know with, you know, that's like a whole issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what would you say to that? Well, I think the different mediums like texting, um, they're all good. I mean, they're, I think the pace of how we go about our lives in general and our relationships, and that's both personal and professional, are at a pace today like never before. Um, speed of information, speed of data, you know, there even I've read studies where our short-term memory is actually suffering in a big way because we don't need to remember things. If we've got our phone, we can Google it. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the capital of South Carolina? You know, there was a time in, in high school age where you'd have to learn all 50 capitals and this, that, and the other thing, a continents. Today, do you really need to know that if all you need to do is Google it you know, yeah. on your phone, on your smart device, and you've got it? So I think there's, and I do stress think, because I, I think time will tell mm -hmm. um, socially and culturally if that's really good things, if, if we've advanced. Uh, I think if used properly, they can be really good things. But that said, and again, it's at the heart of your question, I think personal connectivity, personal uh, get to know someone really and sincerely um, is critically important. Uh, when that's done and when that's mastered in a very sincere way, because we're all smart, uh, we can sniff out in a heartbeat when people are insincere. If mm -hmm. you know, if you're really asking me about my, you know, this, that, or the other thing, but I, I can, I can sense that you, you don't really care. Yeah, absolutely. That can backfire on you in a hurry. But if you're really sincere and you care about the person across from the table that you're trying to get to know, um, long lasting relationships come from that um, in both personal and professional. And so, uh, you know, social media, texting, this, that, and the other thing, if it's ever a replacement outright for the real face-to-face, -face, get to know you, nurturing relationships, that will be a bad thing in my, in my opinion. If they're supplementing, if they're used here and there, that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. Because of, again, the pace of communication these days is, is light years beyond 
even 30 years ago what it was. And, and I've, you know, in that earlier example where we didn't have the internet, didn't have, you know, voicemail, et cetera, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yep. So yeah. it's all good. No, you, I mean, I think it, mean, I think it really does uh, mean a lot still and, and build so much. I mean, that's what we are human, you know, we like to meet and, and converse and everything else. And it's really been interesting, especially with some of the athletes I've coached in the fall and everything else where, you know, they're, just it, it it seems like it's a different personality because it's like the five minute communication whatever else and then it's boom they're down like looking at your phone whatever else and uh it, yep. it's such an interesting kind of path to navigate forward and i'm really you know kind of interested to see what what it'll do with that business world and and how that outlook kind of looks i mean especially everything that's just happened with covid i mean you know, you've seen Zoom has created, you know, the, this podcast at some point is going to be in studio once we're through this. But I mean, you know, Zoom has been a great savior and it's uh, obviously made uh, made the world uh, continue to be able to function. But um, it's just one of those things where I, I feel like it's definitely getting getting lost more and more just being able to communicate with, you know, mom, dad, parents. Right. And, and, you know, we always you had dinner as a family and you would talk about your day you whether it's what's going on in the world or sports or whatever else you'd have that opportunity to kind of um discuss those things and those are some of the i think the biggest moments that built at least my character and and my values and things like that just you know shooting the breeze over dinner of of what the next steps are what you need to do to build your career or whether you know whether we're talking about skiing where you don't have a good result and you need what do you go back to the workshop and what you need to fix and all that stuff. I mean, that's all discussed in person. And, and I feel like a lot of that is getting a little more lost. So I'm interested to see what that, what that kind of turns out to be here. Yeah. 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 Something that you just said brought up, you know, something that I've used a little slogan, if you will, uh, for years in business. And it's something that I really believe in strongly and it's a simple saying, when two people in business always agree, one is unnecessary. And, you know, in the management teams and the companies that I've built over the years, I've always wanted to surround myself with people who didn't just, dis- just agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I would always say I'm not that good. Uh, if all you do is agree with me, that's going to concern me. Um, what I really want is professional pushback polite respectful professional pushback and in doing that we're going to make ourselves better and i think in you know in a word persuasion mm-hmm. you can persuade people purest definition of persuasion you've got a point of view someone else doesn't and you you pull them to your your point of view you're persuading them it's not impossible in zoom on the phone or in text but it's really not a good proxy for face-to-face, you know, like that. I I really want to pull you along. And sometimes it takes several conversations and time and, and discourse and what have you. But that's where, even during this pandemic, to your point of all the strides that we've made with virtual work sites and connecting the way we are today, that's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly beats the alternative of not meeting, not seeing, et cetera. So the medium and the technology is good, but I tell people all the time, don't think for a second, it's a proxy for, to your point, being in the studio. Yep. And because in Zoom, when, and, and in this podcast, when it ends, we'll click on it, end, end meeting, and we're done. Yep. The screen goes away, we're done. In a face-to-face meeting, when a meeting ends, there's always the meetings after the meetings, out in the hallway, mm-hmm. over coffee, whatever it might be. And oftentimes those are the most valuable. People for various different reasons didn't want to speak up, didn't want to offend or whatever it might be. But now one-on-one, they're willing to say that to you because mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's a safer environment or whatever the, the rationale might be. Those are incredibly invaluable. Um, and something that, again, I hope we don't strive so away from that connectivity, because I don't, and that's where I think it will be actually a negative. Um, we're not there yet. We're not anywhere close, but I yeah. think it's something to keep our, our mind on, our thoughts on. For sure. So when two people agree, one is unnecessary. 
When two people always agree. Always agree. Okay. Yeah. Always agree. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the actual quote, and this will tell you um, how dated it was. And I'll give it to you because I know it. I've been using it for so many years. I modified it. But the original quote was, when two men in business always agree, one is unnecessary. Okay. Mm, yeah. Well, when I started my career, uh, there were plenty of women in the workforce and it just didn't apply. So I don't even know when that quote came out, the 50s mm -hmm. or the 40s or who knows when. But I modified it to when two people in business always agree, one is unnecessary. And I think the key is the always. You can, you know, we can agree all, you know, yeah. often, mm -hmm. but if you don't agree, speak up, disagree. Yeah. So now what is the, I mean, would you say not speaking up and, and things like that? What is the difficulty of, of, cause it is one of those things and every guest I've talked to about it is that fear, that fear of speaking up and being able to disagree and that, or it's the fear of failure. There's always some level of fear in, in whatever, you know, uh, I've certainly had mine, I'm sure in the business, you know, it's a fear like, all right, if this doesn't go through, I'm going to be in, in some serious trouble here. Right. What for you kind of helped you get through those moments of, of meeting with that fear? You know, I've had different people on like Olympic gold medalist, uh, Hannah Kearney was always uh, very much of accepting and thinking about what the worst possible outcome could be. Like, okay, yeah. I'm at the Olympics. I, you know, crash all over the place 10 times and like, okay, it's definitely not going to be that bad, but that is probably as bad as it could be. Okay. Let's try to walk that back into more of like, what's the reality and what's going to happen. Everyone's still going to love me. Sun's going to come up tomorrow. Like everything's going to be okay. So I'm just kind of curious in, you know, your the aspect of your business career and, and everything else, what has kind of helped you uh, get through some of those fears? Well, I think, you know, whether you're, you're in a leadership position or not, you have to be real. Um, I, think a, I think an absolute death toll is for someone using that, the expression that I just shared with you, when two people in business always agree one is unnecessary. If I'm espousing that as a business leader to my company or my leadership team or or the whole firm, but then don't support that. As soon as someone does speak up and they have the courage to speak up, maybe they're in a lower level position, not of authority, and, but they've heard me say, speak up, you know, blah, blah, blah. If I then shoot that down or I don't respect that, uh, I'm done. First of all, as, as a leader, my credibility is completely shot, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, that disconnect between my words and my actions and my follow through. And am I, am I supporting that in a word? Am I being real? Um, if I'm not, as I just said, I'm done. And, mm -hmm. and before I was in leadership positions, I was always trying to persuade, you know, back in the sales roles and what have you, but I wanted, I always strive to be real um, and honest and sincere and, mm -hmm and hardworking. I always thought no one's going to outwork me. Okay. Um, so that will never be an issue. And I say it in air quotes, there's always someone that's going to work harder and longer. Um, but it, I always had that attitude that no one's going to outwork me. There's going to be people that are smarter than me. There's going to be people that are um, more talented in various different ways. There's going to be people that have an inside track to the lead, you know, to the management roles or whatever it might be. I get that that's life. Mm -hmm. but I'm going to work really hard, but I'm going to be real. I'm going to be sincere. And I've carried that all the way through, not just professionally, but personally. Um, and you know what? That's going to be good enough for a lot of people, but even some people not going to be good enough. I mean, mm -hmm. we probably don't have enough time, nor do you want to even go <laughs> in the whole political arena that we're immersed in. Mm. But if more people on either side of the aisle could be real sincere and, and I, I mean, that sounds really Pollyannish, mm -hmm. but um, we'd be better off. I really believe that. Oh, hundred percent. I, I mean, that way personally and professionally. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things as you touched on earlier about how people can also see through that, right. If you're not being real or being genuine, being authentic, like people will know. And that's the interesting thing when, especially when you get into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with someone, you can tell when somebody's just got the, 
defense mechanisms up and, you know, stonewalled, you're not getting through. And it's, it's definitely, uh, one of those things being, being real, I think definitely, uh, is uh, something that you need to do. (laughs) And it's, it shouldn't be a premium. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. be, it shouldn't be that once in a rare time that, wow, you know, that was, that was a great conversation or a great meeting because of the sincerity. Mm -hmm. It should be more, uh, the norm in my opinion. Now, one of those things I wanted to touch on is that kind of transition from the sales and IBM and everything else into more of those leadership roles, being executive, CEO on the boards and all those things that you've done in your career so far. I mean, what, what are the difficult or what were the difficulties of that transition for you? Was that a smooth transition or was that a, a difficult uh, process for you? Well, it was one that, um, I mean, I probably was in my first so I, so I made the leap from, you know, healthcare provider to strategy consulting. So I ended up spending, you know, a number of years at PwC and Deloitte and rose up through the ranks in those firms to chair and, and head up their consulting practices in the U.S. And both those firms worked not exclusively, but, but at times almost exclusively with the Fortune 500 and sometimes even the Fortune 150. So we were dealing with the biggest of big corporations. I was young. Um, I was like in my mid thirties, I think when I rose up through the ranks at PwC to Mm -hmm. to practice leadership. So again, still young to deal with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and boards, you know, by extension, I would get in front of the boards a lot. Um, But so it was a, it's a tough one, Bobby, because it was a, a slow, some people might say it was anything but slow, but it was a progressive <laughs> transition. There wasn't a point in time where I, I became a manager, you know, yeah. I was given more and more responsibilities. A lot of times I just assumed more responsibility, even before it was uh, formally bestowed upon me or the title was there or the salary mm-hmm. became commensurate with the new responsibility. I just took it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of happened. And then the leadership roles, uh, kind of fell into place, if you will. And I, mm-hmm. I took those on, um, through to the present, you know, frankly, and I, this is a great thing. It's all about results. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, that's true in sports. It's true in business. It's true in life. In, in, in I hate to say it, but it's kind of like, what have you done for me lately? Um, so in all these roles, um, you're constantly needing to, uh, achieve and realize acceptable and more than acceptable results. Mm -hmm. Um, and that always just resonated with me. That was never foreign to me. Um, so I kind of thrived in that, but, but I think at the core, it's still all people. It's all how you manage people in relationships. So being able to manage them. Now, what would you do like habit wise, like when you're building out your, your schedule and, and everything else for the week? Cause I mean, you have so much going on and a lot on your plate. How do you kind of tackle your week? Cause I know a bunch of my guests have had uh, different ways that they kind of uh, like to organize it. You know, when I had uh, Jeremy Bloom on, he was all about every Sunday kind of looking at what his next week was going to look like. And then he would set aside, um, I think seven, nine 30 every morning was his personal time to kind of do his workout or whatever else. And then after the fact, okay, start the day after that. So do you have um, a typical schedule you like to, to keep up with to kind of keep track of what you need to get done each day? Are you a, a list, a list maker or post-it note guy? Cause there's a bunch out there. It's been, it's been yeah. fun to see how many different ways people uh, try to stay organized and on top of things. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is probably one of the things that I'm not all that proud of, but um, believe it or not, I'm on my third airline of over a million miles uh, traveled um, lifetime. And, uh, you know, just saying that it pains me in so many ways <laughs> because, you know, when you're on that many airplanes and fly in different places, that means you're away from family and, and what have you. So um, I lived in Seattle for 30 plus years before moving here almost 10 years ago. Um, Seattle's a great city, but from a business standpoint, 
on the West Coast. Most of my business was on the East Coast in New York. Mm -hmm. So I found myself um, always living three hours in the future. Um, and so I would be the guy that was at the office at 6 a.m. Um, because it's 9 a.m. in New York. Right. And that's frankly, with all due respect, that's when they're getting to the office and, you know, from trains and all kinds of different ways to get to the office, Midtown Manhattan or Boston or D.C., wherever it was, they were pretty much arriving at nine. They could always reach me if need be because I was already in my office. I never felt like I was giving anything up. Um, by doing that when I was in my, my home city, because everyone's still sleeping. Mm -hmm. It's not quality time with my wife and kids sure. because they're sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, so I was always in the office really early. I'd fly all kinds of places incessantly for the job, for the what have you. But I would also make a point to be home for birthdays and home for special recitals at school and what have you. And I coached baseball for my, my sons and what have you. And I, I, so a lot of the travel was brought on by me. Like I'd be in Chicago to fly back to Seattle for a school recital or a baseball game only to get on a red eye and get back to Chicago because that's where my business was the next day. So a lot of it was brought on, but from an organization standpoint, I can't show you now because I don't have it out, but I was a Blackberry guy. I mean, I had these Palm Pilots and Blackberries. These are things, devices way back when before, before the iPhone came about. I had a Blackberry. Um, I, I had a Blackberry. <laughs> I wish I still had a Blackberry. Um, but anyway, I mean, that's what that kept my schedule. And I, so I was kind of a slave to that. And, and every executive assistant that I've had over the years was fantastic at, at organizing, you know, all that kind of stuff. We do so much today on our own. Mm -hmm. Back then, I was so reliant on other, other people, but it was kind of the pace that I kept up and I just kept at it. Um, and I, I can honestly say with a smile on my face, I never burned out. I never got to a point where, Oh, I'm just, you know, I can't do this anymore. I've never done that. In fact, these last nine months, um, 2020 on Delta airlines, I think I only flew like 40,000 miles. And that was largely January and February before the, the March shutdown. Right. Um, so it was a strange year in so many ways, but from a travel standpoint mm -hmm. and in retrospect, it was kind of nice, you know, it was the first <laughs> time I wasn't traveling so much and it was kind of nice, but just from an organization standpoint, no, I'm not a, I'm not a quirky person that, that had these different weird habits or whatever they would be that kept me organized. I just kept going, just kind of, it was always constant, a constant pursuit of what the challenges were in front of me. And I just way back to what I said at the top of our discussion around failure, not being an option, mm -hmm. I just kept going, going, going. Now for most, I mean, with that kind of pace and that schedule, I mean, burnout would happen for 99% of people. So I'm just kind of curious to, to speak to, or to give some people some advice if they're starting out, like what, what kind of helped you from burnout? Is it the like keeping specific tasks that you always kind of wanted to accomplish each day? Like, Hey, I got to get this done. This excites me. I'm ready to get into the office. I want to kind of tackle this next task for the week is, is that kind of, so, so, so keeping it small rather than the laundry list and, and looking at it like a, you know, a huge mountain Everest you have to climb just looking at it as like, Oh, I just need to go to base camp one. Yeah. And then move yeah. Forward. I mean, one of the great things about being in the office at 6 a.m., even in a city like Seattle, is the freeways are kind of wide open. And uh, so I would always, well, not always, but I kind of gravitated towards fast cars. And it made the commute really fun. Uh, same thing when we moved to Park City. I found the drive from Salt Lake because my office was down in Sandy. Um what an incredible drive, you know, I mean, winding roads uphill little, you know, and I'll, I'll, again, I'll do it with air quotes. There's no traffic here, right. none to speak yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, you want to see traffic, go to New York, go to Seattle, LA, that's traffic. So I would, I, I only bring this up because I would treat each of these things as like adventures. Let's get to the office. Let's, you know, I can remember driving from Seattle up to Whistler to ski once uh, my wife and I, and, and we made it in like, you know, two and a half, almost three hours. Mm -hmm. And if you do the math, 
and that was on a very early Sunday morning. The biggest challenge was going across the border because that always slows you down. Yeah. But after that, it was like, here we go. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's little things like that, that just, I try to make it fun. I, I love to golf with friends. I love to ski, you know, get out and, and just enjoy and, and have fun, but keeping things diverse. And like I said earlier, my, when my kids were young, being involved with coaching and going to their games and all kinds of stuff that always broke up. Um, I don't want to use the term monotony of business, but the, the rigidity of business and all that that was about there, you know, I had balance. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really interesting kind of perspective to think about the drive to work as a little bit of, of an adventure and, and, everything else. Cause I'm sure most people do not, uh, think of it that way. And it's one of those yeah. things where, I mean, definitely super fortunate here in park city where that drive down to salt Lake is one of the prettiest drives you're going to see in the country or the same thing when you're driving to Whistler in Vancouver, that is an absolutely kind of gorgeous drive. Yeah. And i you know, I feel like a lot of people miss that though. They're in the, okay, I got to get there. And, you know, they have the blinders on and they don't take the second to be like, wow, this is yeah. a really pretty, uh, gorgeous well, drive. As I was mentioning to you earlier, my wife and I went to Telluride this last weekend mm-hmm. and the five and a half hour drive from here to there was beautiful, mm-hmm. gorgeous. Um, especially the closer we got to Telluride, just incredible. Um, so taking it all in, 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 in that regard is, uh, is important. Yeah, definitely. Now, kind of looking back on, you know, failure is not an option and, and everything else. What are those things that help you stay focused? Is it simply having that mentality of I, you know, failure is not an option. I got to get stuff done because I feel like, you know, in life and in most people, there are times where um, you do lose a little bit of focus or you lose a, a little bit of sight. I mean, something you touched on earlier about learning and then having to relearn some of the mistakes that you made, you know, relearning some of those uh, same lessons over again. So kind of what, what, what helps you stay focused or or on target? Well, you know, this might sound contradictory to some of the things that I've just been talking about, but um, you know, and you know, Mary, my wife, Mm -hmm. we're both in our second marriage. Um, So my first marriage uh, failed. Um, it didn't survive. And that was during, I was married for 13 years and my kids, my three kids were, you know, 11, six and four when, uh, when our marriage ended and it, it, you know, in retrospect, certainly at the time I, I was of the mindset where I could do it all. I could, I could have the career. I could, you know, advance it. I could travel like I was, I was making commitments to be with my kids and coach and all the kind of everything that I mentioned all the while the marriage failed. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, so no doubt about it, that's, that's a, that's a blow. It's a, it was a blow to my kids. It took years, um, frankly, to, you know, truly overcome, you know, uh, that a failed marriage more for my kids. Um, Mary and I, when we got together and and married, we combined six, you know, three kids, each of us, a total of six. And um, second time around, and this is just for us, I can't say that it's, you know, applicable to anyone other than us. Mm -hmm. We just looked at each other and, and we knew some of the components of what caused both of our first marriages to fail. And we were adamant that that wasn't going to happen with us in this combined family of of six kids. And, you know, that was 25 years ago um, that, that we came together and forged this new relationship and, and family. And I'd be again, kidding you if I said it was all great over all these 25 years and the kids just, you know, Brady Bunch instantly got along, not the case. Um, But as adults, and really even before they were, you know, in their 20s and, and now in their 30s, they became friends. They learned that, I guess this is for real and it is for the long haul and we are going to be all together. Um, and it's cool to see that happen. And now with grandkids and, and all that kind of stuff, and they're scattered all around the country. Um, but, but make no mistake, 
that was a huge failure, um, uh, you know, for me personally. And first one in my family uh, ever to become, you know, to be divorced, mm-hmm. uh, you know, longstanding Catholic, Irish Catholic family where that's not in the cards, mm-hmm. but it was, I was the first one. And it was, it was appropriate because the marriage clearly was over, didn't survive. And, and now let's repair it. Let's move on. Let's maintain being a good father, you know, all, all that that entails. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a big, you know, inflection point in my life. Now, I mean, one of those things that you really need to do to be able to get through, I mean, obviously those uh, failures and dark times, you got to have the, the perseverance. And for you, I mean, what, what does that entail, having that perseverance, kind of having the, the wherewithal during those dark times? Because, I mean, I know a lot of people that just um, when the going gets tough, they don't get going. <laughs> they- yeah, yeah, well... Clearly, I had a great support. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my family was supportive. My parents were incredibly supportive. My kids um, were supportive. Um, you know, I didn't even, even at the time, I didn't quite realize to what degree, because um, it's hard not to at times feel, you know, woe is me, sorry for yourself, or this or that. But everyone was there, incredibly supportive. Friends, mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, you, you know, you go through some big things in life and you find out who's really, who's really there for you by the way they stand with you. Um, and again, that kind of is woven back through all of what we've talked about thus far about being real and being mm-hmm. sincere. Um, I had many examples of people who weren't sincere, who, who their friendship really wasn't that strong. And I learned yeah. it, you know, sometimes the hard way. Um, but clearly the support and, you know, obviously my relationship with Mary, very strong, um, supportive, you know, both directions, all that kind of stuff. So I'd be kidding you if I, if I even sat here and tried to tell you that it was, well, I could handle that. It was all on my shoulders and I could handle it just fine. It was, um, it was, I, I am a product of great support through and through. And so when those tough things happen, and that was just the first, there's been others, mm-hmm. um, you got to have that support. Yeah. I mean, I think that speaking of that, I mean, that support is really so critical and it doesn't really, uh, I feel like get touched on that much, especially now on social media and most of the things these days you can make your whatever pictures or whatever you want to post is just that life's great. Everything's good not when things are kind of going poorly and you really need to kind of have the, the support staff and it's not all, you know, you're not all on your own. You need those people there to right. be able to kind of support you and things like that. And you know, it's one of those interesting things like with skiing, you know, when you get injured or something like that, I mean, you definitely do know who your friends are. <laughs> I mean, not a divorce, but like, like when I tore my ACL, and you're sitting on a couch and I mean, you know who your friends are when who reaches out to kind of see how you're doing and all those people that are kind of the the fake friends. And then, you know, you you really get a chance to see that when you're laying on a couch for four months. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. I, I, I know. Yeah. I I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. uh, Definitely. One of those interesting, interesting things, but that is uh, one of the great things about life. You know, you kind of move forward and it it helps you so much uh, to, to grow, you know, it brings in so much growth and uh, it's one of those things I'm always trying to continue to kind of keep growing into whatever that new opportunity is going to be. And most of the times it comes from the perseverance or it comes from the failures. I feel like I've learned, you know, 10 times more from the days that didn't work out so well on the Hill or, off the hill or whatever that may be. And uh, would you say that's similar for you and some of the oh, business and stuff like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes it's the, um, the times when you least expect a critical moment or a critical lesson learned or a critical life lesson to appear. It's when you were probably least prepared, least ready uh, but then it presents itself and it's how you, how you respond, how you react um, that, that really is the full measure of, of yourself 
and I'm, I'm talking deep, deep down, mm-hmm. how you, how you handle things. Um, and time and again, it's, it's when you least expect it. Um, you know, that's why I'm always, I always kind of smile when people are of the mindset that everything's going great. You know, it's, it's, it's just upward trajectory, no yeah. bumps. And I just smile and I'm like, hmm, tomorrow we'll probably bring a challenge or whatever <laughs> it is. And, and again, the more you're kind of grounded in who you are, what you're about, what's most important, uh, the, the better you'll get through things. I'm not going to say the easier because yeah. really the really tough things are probably the most meaningful things mm-hmm. uh, that mold and shape you and, and, you know, lead to greater things down the road, personally and professionally. Absolutely. Yeah. I hundred percent agree with you, uh, there. Now, one of the things we, we were touching on a little bit earlier, you know, you mentioned a professor who, you know, really helped you through and get into IBM and all those uh, interesting things. Who else would you say has helped you or, you know, um, that you've taken things from that have really, uh, I know you mentioned mom and dad, but, but is there anyone else kind of professional world that have really um, given you some guidance and, and leadership uh, to, to get you where you are? So I'm going to leave names out. Um <laughs> Because I know that uh, your podcast has a wide swath of, of um, interested people. But I'll just say this. There have been a lot. And I could name, you know, all jokes aside, I could name a number of people throughout my career who were instrumental um, in various different ways. Sometimes little things, seemingly little things, but they were really poignant and really kind of helped mold and shape. But the reason why I jokingly said I'm not going to name names is there's similarly mm-hmm. throughout my entire life, personal and professional, been people that do things and did things exactly the opposite, in my opinion, of how it should have been done. So negative examples. Okay. <laughs> and that's why I'm going to leave the names off. Mm-hmm. Um, even to the point, let me give you an example, a generic example I sit on a number of boards, corporate boards, and some of my board experience, public and private, um, early early in my, so I've been sitting on boards for almost 30 years. First board uh, I joined was uh, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, I, I had some fellow board members who were horrible uh, in terms of, how they conducted themselves, their fiduciary responsibilities or lack thereof, their selfish perspective versus the good of the company and the products mm-hmm. and the services and, and what have you. Um, but, but I found that they were um, prolific. They, they, they were everywhere, people like mm-hmm. that. And so I learned these negative, I, I, I observed traits and um, habits and perspectives that I would never bring forth. And, and I started to mold that helped mold and shape me from a management standpoint, from a board member standpoint, et cetera, mm-hmm. all the way through to the present where some of the boards I sit on now I'm on because I'm kind of the cleanup guy. I'm the guy that's brought in because a board is dysfunctional. And no one can really get their arms around the dysfunction and where the source of the dysfunction is and things like that. Mm-hmm. And for various different reasons, I can ferret that out. And I can confront in a professional, polite, respectful manner, the bad behavior, the bad individuals, et cetera. And I can refocus the board and ultimately the company in ways that are beneficial to the if it's a public setting, the shareholders, the customers, the constituents that are all there. Um, so it's kind of funny that some of the negatives that I've observed and been a part of by, by extension, um, I now years later, I can see it. I'm not saying I'm an Oracle or, you know, right. I've got some special gifts, <laughs> but I can see it and I can do something about it because I've kind of been there and done that. I see where it's only going to get worse. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So 
huh. like I said, not going to name names, but mm. they know who they are and they're out there and I've dealt with them. And, and unfortunately it's all too prolific. Um, unfortunately. It's mm. super, super interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I really enjoy that answer. I mean, I think it really speaks to really having to kind of be observant and, and read the room and be able to, you know, really understand the people that you're kind of, kind of dealing with. I mean, that's a, um, super interesting, uh, it is interesting answer. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And, you know, most people have not said the, uh, negative experiences or, or things like that. So I think that that's uh, profound yeah. for sure. And I think it, um, hopefully makes people think about kind of getting a whole sense of, of being observant when you're in a room, kind of understanding people and being able to kind of um, soak some of those interactions and, and stuff like that up, because uh, it seems like there could be a lot to learn from that. I had a uh, real quick, I had on that very point, I had a, a person that really became a mentor also George Metzger, who was at Textron corporation, one of my clients when I was on the consulting side, um, fascinating guy, incredibly smart, gifted, but incredibly uh, poignant as well. Um, I, I actually ended up having him sit on two different boards of companies that I ended up becoming CEO of in his retirement years, just because I thought he was so wise in, in so many different ways. He said one thing once, and he always, he, he really did not say a lot, but he said, there's a reason why God gave you two ears and one mouth. And it's because you should listen more, if not twice as much as you talk. And I know that's not been evident in this podcast with how long and, and you know, drawn out my answers are, but he was a man of few words, but when he did speak, it was incredibly poignant and, and mm -hmm. spot on and, um, and great. So I'll forever remember that too, the two ears and one mouth analogy two years one mouth I'm writing that one down i got a, i got a whole list coming of quotes here you know how my dad is too he's got all of his one-liners oh, he can pull out of nowhere i don't know where, yeah. he's, where, he, yeah. where he stores all those <laughs> <laughs> well um one more thing i kind of was just uh um curious about uh for you if you could offer some advice for for those out there that are kind of getting into the business world or um you know, navigating, maybe they're doing their own startup or they're trying to f navigate their own world and kind of fears and doubts and things like that. What kind of uh, words of wisdom or just a couple um, little things for them to kind of keep plugging along? Yeah, that? just absolutely go for it. I, I think the entrepreneurial spirit is something that is second to none in our country. Um, I hope it will forever be alive and well, despite how big we become as a country, how populous how you know potentially overcrowded certain areas are never lose that entrepreneurial drive um don't don't ever be afraid and this is on a micro scale all the way up to micro or to macro issues don't ever be afraid to fail um i've always said if you're going to fail fail fast and and recognize it and then move on and there's a baseball analogy can't remember who shared this with me the first time i've heard it but i've used it so many times over the years, you can't steal second and keep your foot on first. Mm -hmm. You got to go for it. Um, and that doesn't mean there's been, you know, at the major league level, no one has ever been a hundred percent, you know, successful in stealing bases. You're going to get thrown out. Mm -hmm. um, there will be times that you'll get thrown out. Uh, when you do get up, brush yourself off and run to the dugout, you know, and tip your hat to that catcher that threw you out or the pitcher that knew you were going to go and stepped off the rubber and threw you out. Um, those things happen, but go for it. That's the whole, you know, can't steal second and leave your, your foot on first. It's not going to be safe. You yeah. got to go for it. And um, so that from a piece of advice, that's what I would say and, and say as often as I possibly can to people that, that if you've got an idea if you've got to drive, pursue it, because the last thing in the world you ever want to do years later is look back with any kind of regret. I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. Mm -hmm. um, better, in my opinion, to have said I did that. I tried it. I made a go of it for two years. It didn't work. So I, I moved on or whatever. But at yeah. least you gave it a shot. Absolutely. 
Well, Doug, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, one thing to, uh, to touch on the, uh, charity, uh, donation, who, where are we, uh, putting our donation towards? I think, um, the Huntsman, Huntsman cancer research, um, okay. we had, uh, I'll just say it quickly. Mary had some, um, really rare form of cancer a couple of years ago, came completely out of the blue. Um, if we were not living where we are here in, in Utah and, mm -hmm. and so close to the Huntsman Cancer Research Center, I don't know if she'd be here today, but um, she got incredible care. Um, it was diagnosed early, surgery went well, uh, chemo was hell. Um, uh, and I can say that not being the patient, but just watching her go through it. But she's, you know, two and a half, three years removed and, and healthy. Um, so I can't say enough good things about the Huntsman Cancer Research Center. So yeah, any, any support going their way is fantastic. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a worthy cause if there ever was one for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time, Doug. I really do appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Well, uh, hope, like I said, hopefully uh, we'll, the next one will be in studio, have a, a glass of whiskey and we can talk a little bit more. I'd love to. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks, Bobby. All right. Thanks everybody. All right. Yeah, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.